Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 127, recorded on October 13th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. Richard Stallman is the top of the news again this week. Yeah, last time we talked about him and his resigning from the FSF and MIT, we weren't sure what was going to happen with GNU, and things were a little bit uncertain with his website and everything. Well, then subsequently, it's turned out that he has not resigned from GNU. He's very much still the chief GNU since, as he puts it. And since that clarification, there's been a bit of controversy about that. This became news this week, primarily because the FSF released a statement, and we'll have the full statement linked in the show notes, but in part it reads, GNU decision-making has largely been in the hands of GNU leadership. Since RMS resigned as president of the FSF, but not as head of GNU, the FSF is now working with GNU leadership on a shared understanding of the relationship for the future. Now, that was published on October 6th of 2019. On October 7th of 2019, a joint statement of the GNU project was released on the Geeks blog. Yeah, and this has been signed by a seemingly ever-growing list of GNU developers. And it basically says... Thanks for all you've done, Stallman, but we don't want you to be in charge anymore. As we record this episode, that is 27 GNU maintainers have signed this letter. To put that in perspective, there's somewhere between 300 and 400 GNU maintainers overall. So you have just an idea here of what the actual ratio is. The next day, on the Info GNU mailing list, which we talked about recently, Richard Stallman himself made a very quick post. He says, as the chief GNUsense, I'd like to reassure the community that there won't be any radical changes in the GNU project's goals, principles, and policies. I would like to make incremental changes in some decisions because I won't be here forever, and we need to ready others to make GNU project decisions when I can no longer do so. So my personal read of that, Joe, is that Richard Stallman saying... I'm not going anywhere. I'm not even challenged about going anywhere. But we will make some slight modifications to reduce bus factor. That is one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is he's pretty much paying lip service to the idea that he won't be in charge. It feels very much like he feels that it's his baby, his project, and he's in charge of it. Well, he's right. It is. My understanding is GNU is not even a legal entity. It's not a charity. You, you can't give money to the GNU project. Uh, and besides the manifesto, GNU has no bylaws. It has no constitution. It has no founding document. You could describe GNU as a set of software packages that have been designated by RMS, really, as a forming part of GNU. It's as much of a group of maintainers and a philosophy as it is an organization. It's It's really... It's not something you can take from the man. You know what I mean? It's not something you can take from him. It's his. It GNU is Richard Stallman. I suppose it's a loose collective of people who generally agree with his ideals. Right. I suppose that that loose collective could say, well, we'll follow somebody else's leadership going forward. But consider those that have stuck around this long have likely come to peace with who Richard Stallman is, except for that 30 or so that we've seen so far. But if it is such a small ratio of them, then the chances are that nothing's going to change here and it's just going to be business as usual. And the FSF is in a very awkward position where they have to decide what to do. I can't see a simple solution for them. I suppose some of these projects 
could spin off on their own. However, some of them are fairly significant. There's some maintainers of GCC, GNU GPG, Emacs, and uh, a few other essential things that we rely upon, like DNS utilities, that are on this list. So if they chose to split off, it would be a pretty significant loss for GNU. So they need, they do need to resolve this, and I, I think that's why they're they're doing these joint statements and they're they're attempting to really sort of parse this as carefully as they can. But there is pressure from a influential group of people saying there needs to be change here. But at the end of the day, there's there's no board to kick RMS off. There's there's no legal entity to go after. So it's it's a particular challenge. I suppose they could start the new GNU, <laughs> Neo GNU. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Nuganu or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I get the feeling that this is going to rumble on for quite a while. I don't think we're going to have a conclusion to it anytime soon. They just need a good message, Joe. At least that's according to Sousa. You just say you're focused on customers and then pretty much anything flies. Headline from the Sousa blog, quote, Sousa's focusing on application delivery to meet customer needs. In other words, they're dropping OpenStack and getting all in on Kubernetes. Well, as they say in this blog post, this decision clearly aligns with the developments in the market. And that's the feeling that I've had for quite some time. I mean, all of us have, right? That OpenStack is yesterday's news and now it's all about Kubernetes. I guess so. Yeah. It's a big deal to see SUSE make this change, though. I kind of um, I laugh at spinning this as customer-focused because what about all the OpenStack customers <laughs> that they've been selling to for a while? Not so great for those customers. Well, they do say they're going to keep supporting them throughout the length of their contract. Yeah, that's that's all that's all good and well. It's just you know they've invested pretty significantly into an infrastructure that oh by the way we're we're no longer supporting because customers. Um, but it does seem to be the way of the future, and I can I can really appreciate how the SUSE folks feel that they have a unique opportunity where they're not aligned with any one particular vendor. They they're sort of the perfect neutral solution for uh, this part in the stack. And when the distribution becomes merely an implementation detail and you're not really too set on what the base image is, barring many factors, then perhaps SUSE has a shot. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of reaching here, Joe, because <laughs> to be honest, this would have been a hell of an announcement three years ago. Well, to get ahead of the game rather than follow it like they seemingly are now. Right. Uh, there is a quote in their blog that really cements this. They say, quote, As we make these bold customer-driven investments, and in order to maximize these opportunities, SUSE has carefully reviewed its business and has decided to cease production of new versions of SUSE OpenStack Cloud and to discontinue sales of SUSE OpenStack Cloud. It's a reaction. Well, they must have been looking at the numbers in the spreadsheets and realized that they're just not selling enough of it, and therefore it doesn't make sense to keep doing it. Absolutely fair enough. Fair enough. But a real market leader and somebody who's going to pull ahead of the pack and really differentiate would have been onto that signal a while ago. That's my personal take, just witnessing how Canonical and Red Hat have changed their business models to respond to the reality we live in. It's a little disappointing to see Sousa literally the last one to make this connection. And I think there could have been a way to, to bridge this gap a little more elegantly than they are doing now, instead of this hard shift and now it's in support mode. But the details will definitely be what makes the difference in this particular story. Well, the details are what a lot of people were worried about with Google's AMP, formerly Accelerated Mobile Pages. When they made that big, huge shift in governance model, one of the details they hinted at 
was that they may move AMP under a totally separate foundation than from under Google. Now we know that's the OpenJS Foundation. And we should probably mention up front that AMP is joining the incubation program for the OpenJS Foundation. And to understand what that is, they write on their website, quote, over the coming months, AMP will work with the OpenJS Foundation to complete the onboarding checklist and then join the foundation. So there's this sort of incubator stage that they can get some of the benefits of being part of the foundation right now, some of the governance benefits. Then they have time to complete the rest of the onboarding process. And Google will continue to employ staff to work on the AMP project full-time. And also worth noting, Google is already a platinum member of the OpenJS Foundation and provides additional financial and other forms of support to the foundation already. (laughs) So they're going to be great. I think that onboarding process is going to go real smooth. (laughs) Yeah. And essentially not much is really going to change, at least for now. But what's interesting is that they've chosen now, when AMP is about four years old, to transfer it out of Google's control completely. It seems like they waited long enough for it to properly establish itself as the standard. And they've kind of won at this point, and so they don't really need to be in full control of it anymore. I see it differently. I see it as the new version of a code dump. Only now, there's foundations in the mix. So you build something up, you quote-unquote open source it, but yet you maintain total control over it. You push it down the pipeline of existing value products that you already have and mandate adoption, and then you move it to a foundation in which you are one of the primary financial and other quote-unquote contributors to. And then you have heavy influence because, A, you're supporting the foundation, B, you're employing the full-time developers of AMP. So it's sort of, I think, um, modern day, it's, let's, let's be futuristic. Let's say it's, it's the 2020 version of a code dump where you, like, you used to develop something and just say, here it is, here's a whole big bunch of code, go use it, everybody, it's great, it works great. Now it's this, you, you build something up internally, you call it open source, you get adoption, and then you have, I'm going to say it, a puppet foundation, <laughs> and you're set. You're all set. And um, I suppose it's still better than fully closed commercial software because at least it's a foundation and at least there's some oversight and we have overview of open source code. So it's better than the alternative still. But it's not a proper open standard, really. They can dress it up as such, but you're saying that it just isn't. Not today, I suppose. Like so many of these things... Five, ten years from now, time will tell. We'll see. We will see how much influence Google leverages over the OpenJS Foundation. Perhaps it's a non-issue, but only time will tell us. I mean, they could they could proclaim from the tops of the hills that they are under no influence, but only truly their actions will tell us the real story. I can't help but think back to Kubernetes and how they did a fairly similar thing with that. Fair enough, I suppose. And in in that instance. They were really coming from an underdog standpoint. The Google Cloud was, you know, the smaller of the available commercial cloud options. And so coming out with something that was cross-cloud was perfect for, for them. In this situation, I think they've been met with a lot of resistance because they're so dominant in web search and in the web browser. So the stakes are just so much higher this time around. 
Well, Google's next big thing is Stadia, their cloud gaming platform. And they made a pretty audacious claim this week. Right. This is based on comments from a top streaming engineer, Alex Wilcher from Google. He says the company is verging on gaming superiority from anything a PC could do in the next two years. Quote, ultimately, we think in a year or two, we'll have games that are running faster and feel more responsive in the cloud than they do locally, regardless of how powerful the local machine is. So he's claiming that not only is Stadia going to be on a par with a local Xbox or whatever, it's going to actually be better. How is that even possible? (laughs) Well, it's all thanks to something called negative latency, which will act as a workaround for any potential lag between the player and the server. This is according to him. And of course, it really comes down to a data angle. I mean, this is Google. The term describes a buffer of predicted latency, which is inherent to Stadia players and their connection. It'll figure that out as you play. So then, after the Stadia system figures out your particulars, it will begin what's called lag mitigation. This will include increasing the frame rates rapidly in a bursty mode when needed and then lowering them in other situations to reduce latency that the player perceives. Unbelievably, but yet so googly at the same time, it will even try to predict user inputs and in certain situations play for you when there's a latency disruption. So you're telling me that it's going to speculate what buttons you're going to press and then execute them ahead of time. Right. It's going to learn how you play. It's going to learn the particulars of your connection and its issues. And then it's going to step in for you when the connection can't keep up in a way that you don't really perceive anything has happened. So speculative execution, what could go wrong? (laughs) Also, you have to ask yourself, who's actually playing the game? (laughs) At that point, I guess you're still having a good time (laughs) because your game's not getting screwed up. Yeah, people are comparing it to aim assist and stuff like that. It just seems a bit too futuristic and, quite frankly, impossible, really. I can imagine on a a basic 2D game or something, you could do this quite easily. But on these really complex, you know, first-person shooters and stuff, how is that even possible to anticipate what moves you're going to make? It just, it seems like an impossible dream to me. Unless you consider that they could have tens of thousands of other people playing that same game, and they're capturing and monitoring everything you do in that game, and then using that as a model to predict what you might need to do at the same exact moment. If they have the decision of, say, 15,000 other players in that same exact moment of the game, and 75% of them pushed uh, X and looked up, they can probably pretty accurately predict that that's what you would do, and just do that move, and stitch it all together. This is why I became a Stadia backer, because I think, in a really kind of scary, creepy way, Google is the company that can figure this out. Between the network connectivity that they have, the hardware access that they have, and then this kind of stuff, I I could actually see them pulling it off. We'll see. I have a lot of varying internet connections in which I can try this. I don't know how likely it is to work, but this this is why I became a whatever they call their their backer where you get the whole kit because i'm i'm fascinated to see what they can pull off and what it means for desktop linux well you have to assume that they won't open source any of the machine learning stuff that's required to do that but it is all going to be running on a linux backend so we hopefully will get some of the benefits from it 
Maybe. I, I actually could see Google years down the road open sourcing it. They've kind of done that over time. They've they've implemented something. They've put it in production. They've gotten some benefit from it. Uh, they've trialed it or dog-fooded it and then released it. They just recently did that with a pretty sophisticated differential privacy library. Yeah, well, here's hoping. But speaking of things that you've uh, spent or wasted your money on to see how it turns out, the Atari VCS is back in the news this week. Oh, it's too soon, Joe, too soon. <laughs> I'm not quite as positive on the Atari VCS. Quick recap, Atari VCS is a retro-looking little Linux box that's going to have a custom Atari UI with an app store and some retro games, some modern games, and the promise to run your own OS. However... That promise looks a little more shaky as one of their key design contributors or a firm spilled the beans this week that things haven't been going so well. Yeah, they claim that they haven't been paid for six months and they've had enough and have quit the project. And that's after delay, after delay, after delay. But Atari does dispute this in in, in sort of an indirect manner. They went to their blog and said, well, things are... A little out of date with their information. We haven't worked with them for a while because we haven't paid them. (laughs) Uh, And things are going really great. Everything's right on track. Don't worry about it at all. And uh, by the way, uh, the register, some of that is our IP, and we may ask you to take it down at any point. We reserve that right. Okay, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, that register piece was a, a real deep dive, and they spent two weeks investigating it, and it looked pretty damning for the project. But then this Atari blog post kind of answers some of those questions, but then also kind of admits that it's nowhere near ready. Yeah, just about ready for production, though. That's the quote in the the blog post. Just about, just real close. Um, Yeah, this is rough because Atari as a company has the launch of this console listed as one of three major goals for the entire company. You talk about Atari like it's the same company as the 70s and 80s, but the reality is that it's just really the name and the trademarks that were just sort of sold and now this company's got it. And yeah, yeah, they can call themselves Atari, but it's not the same company really. Yep. Perhaps that's why we are where we're at. Well, I couldn't help but bring this up just to troll you because I know that you are waiting for it and I think you're (laughs) going to be waiting for a very long time or you're going to get something that is a very nice looking little Linux box, which isn't massively expensive, but isn't going to do a huge amount. Yeah, unfortunately, like most of these things, it's going to not be very current either by the time it actually ships. But <laughs> yeah, my my end goal is that one day you can show up for a Linux Fest and it'll be in the studio living room and ready to play. <laughs> I think we'll still be using your NVIDIA Shield for a while. <laughs> yeah, because then I'll be streaming games from Stadia on it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you'll be buying them with Open Libra, no doubt. Obviously, because this is a loose collective of individuals. Who else do I want backing my currency, Joe? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, another loose collective of individuals. Yeah. So this is essentially a fork of Facebook's Libra, which early in the week gained a lot of attention because it had a lot of claims. But then it turns out that a lot of the people who were supposed to be involved with it aren't really involved with it. And it's not really much more than a website. Ooh, man, nothing else is more embarrassing than uh, people pulling out at a rapid pace. And some of them with quotes like, "Um, I just showed up for a meeting. I was just present. (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't mean to be on a uh, slide that was given to uh, a presentation. They 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 have some great goals. You know, they they like the idea of the uh, Libra currency, but they don't like the idea of it being tied with Facebook. All right, pretty understandable. Um, I think the the core issue that they miss is one that many of us, myself, all of us that are Linux geeks, make this mistake every now and then. And that is sometimes we think something can be a success in the market based on its technical merits, and we forget that there's so many other factors at play in the market, so many other dynamics, as they like to say. And sometimes the um, the worst product wins. I could make the cliche comparison of Betamax and VHS, but I think everybody gets what I'm talking about. Sometimes the worser tech wins out simply because it's some sort of market dynamic that makes it um, more available to consumers. And what they're attempting to solve here with a uh, Open Libra Association, it's a great idea. From a technical standpoint, I totally follow it. But what Facebook is offering is corporate sponsorship, corporate backing, worldwide, new world corporate backing, nationless backing of a currency. And um, the whole like central control and a, and a business being behind it is what people will be drawn to. I'm not saying that's what appeals to me, but that's what makes Libra look interesting in comparison to things like Monero or Bitcoin or Ethereum. And so something like this that comes along, it's, it's such a narrow view on the entire problem. Well, yeah, and apart from anything else, it's pretty much academic because Libra is going nowhere now that all of the payment providers have pulled out of it. Well, this is this is brutal. This is super brutal. Every U.S. payment processor, from PayPal to Stripe, has pulled out of Facebook's Libra currency. That is devastating. Well, there's two reasons why this happened so quickly. One is pressure from regulators. And the other is that the first ever Libra Council meeting is happening in Geneva on Monday the 14th, so the Monday that you're probably listening to this. And at that council meeting, that's where some firm commitments were going to have to be made. So it was kind of crunch time. It was either go all in or, as most of these payment processes have, just quit. Right. And it's pretty understandable for a payment processor in the U.S., there are very particular regulations that they are under. And the SEC loves to go after you if you violate those regulations. So it's pretty understandable why they would get sort of cold feet at this stage. Nothing says some of them couldn't go back in. If you look at that initial list, they were some of the heavy hitters. PayPal, Stripe, uh, Visa. Those, you know, are going to make a big difference in the potency of this currency. Yeah, Visa, MasterCard, and PayPal. Between the three of them, you can pretty much pay for anything anywhere in the world. And so it's going to be huge for Libra and therefore Facebook, whereas now the only organizations left are really sort of cryptocurrency people. Yeah. Well, and Spotify <laughs> and Vodafone, <laughs> they're in there too. But you're right. It just, it really changes everything about this. And going back to Open Libra, there is one thing they touch on in their post on openlibra.io, which we have linked, that really kind of clicked with me. Quote, despite pushback from nation states, we believe that Facebook is likely to succeed in their goal. Governments will be focused on their own outcomes and in reality have little legislative power to leverage against a transnational force such as Facebook Libra. For that reason, we are creating Open Libra. I don't think it has a uh, snowball's chance, Joe, but you know, that part did kind of click with me. It does, it does seem like it's possible. Yeah, you never know. 
I was also very amused to hear that Facebook are being sued over the logo for Calibra, which is their wallet software. So not only did they pretty much steal the name from the ebook software, they also have got a logo that looks remarkably like the logo for Current, which is kind of one of these modern online bank things. But the twist in that story is it's the same design company who made both logos. <laughs> that is good. My, my favorite cryptocurrency story was the bad news for Telegram. Remember we talked about Telegram's uh, currency they were raising and, then, and that if they hadn't reached their goal in time, they had to give the money back? Well, the SEC just uh, poured cold water on that particular story. They said it's not happening in the U.S. and they have blocked their $1.7 billion planned token sale. And this quote is pretty, pretty telling. It says, our emergency action today is intended to prevent Telegram from flooding the U.S. market with digital tokens that we allege were unlawfully sold. (laughs) That doesn't sound good for Telegram at all. (laughs) I guess they're not going to become that big, fancy crypto wallet after all. Well, no, it looks like they are going to have to pay back all the people who invested in it, Maybe. which is going to be tricky for them. I don't know. I mean, God, it'd just be a shame if they just focused on messaging features. Wouldn't that be? What about presence awareness and D&D features? Oh, man, <laughs> wouldn't that be a shame? That'd just be horrible. Man, if they want to make a buck, I'd pay for those features. Tell you what, I just sort of feel like since they shifted gears and they started focusing on on their cryptocurrency and their uh, wallet and their identity stuff, the overall messaging features until just very recently have sort of suffered, especially in group chats where you have maybe you know close to a thousand over a thousand members, thousand plus. They've really failed to deliver on uh, features that compete with things like Discord or even um, you know things like Slack and Rocket Chat. This cryptocurrency distraction reminds me of the mobile distraction that so many Linux companies get afflicted with. Well, yeah, and it was flavor of the month, wasn't it, when Bitcoin was nearly $20,000. And you have to assume that a lot of these cryptocurrency-based plans were starting to be formed around then and have taken a little while to get going. And now the kind of shine has come off cryptocurrencies. Blockchain as a fundamental technology is still doing relatively well. But I think that you're right. Yeah, it does feel very much like the mobile distraction that we had from the Linux companies. And in that time, the SEC and other US government agencies have had time, like the IRS, have had time to learn about cryptocurrency and um, have a more aggressive approach now. It's less of a wild west than it was even a year ago. And while they developed this product, the market has changed from right underneath them. And now they have a very aware government agency, which is ready to look into all of this. <laughs> it really kind of, I don't know, if I was Telegram, I'd be worried. It's, it's, um, it's, very, it's very possible that uh, they could have to give that money back. Well, we'll keep an eye on that and all the stories in Linux and open source. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get the future episodes. We always like hearing your feedback, suggestions, and ideas for the show. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for all the ways to get in touch. Also, check out our weekday show, the Linux News and Open Source Headlines, every single weekday in three minutes or less. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. I am at Joe Rissington. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.